I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we gather together the many pieces of text on a subject and then compare them all together to reach a possible conclusion. Well, this week we begin the book of Leviticus, and unfortunately for most of us, this book is one that we have a hard time connecting to. So much of it is from a completely different time and culture that we simply don't understand as well as we might like. As is the case with so much of scripture, we must attempt to put ourselves in their shoes, to try to experience the words through the mind of an ancient people. And to do that, we must try to discover what they knew. And so just as we experienced with the book of Exodus, the English title leaves us primed for something that's not entirely accurate. In the book of Exodus, the English title primed us to expect a narrative story about the events of the Exodus. And so when the book transitions halfway through to the topic of tabernacle and legal case examples, uh, we disconnect. We tend to shut down and pay little attention to what's written from that point on. But when we use the Hebrew name of the book, Shemot, we discover that the title fits for the entirety of the book. And this is what we discover throughout the book. It's the name of God and our connection to him. Well, I submit that we face the same issue with the book of Leviticus. The name Leviticus is derived from the Greek name for the book, and it literally means matters pertaining to the Levites. And when we approach this book with the mindset that what it contains is matters pertaining to Levites, well, it becomes super easy to simply skip right over it and to think, well, that means it's not for me. I'm not a Levite. Heck, I'm not even a blood Hebrew. In fact, the book of Hebrews says that the Levitical system failed. And so, this book, it's not for today, is it? Let's skip on to Numbers. Well, to a degree, there is some validity to this thought. There are things within this book that we truly cannot experience today. In fact, to attempt to carry out things like animal sacrifice would lead us into an even greater sin. And so the question becomes, how can this book be applicable to me? Now, if we do the same thing with this book as we did with Exodus, we can discover that this book is about more than simply matters pertaining to Levites. When we look at the Hebrew title of the book, we find that it is Vayikra, which means, and he called. In the Hebrew, the book is not about matters pertaining to Levites, but rather it's about being called to serve Hashem. It's about living in your calling, about being people of worship and service to God. This book is about what is expected of the people of God. And the fact is that there was more expected of priests and Levites than there was of the laymen. And so this book does discuss a lot of topics that do pertain primarily to the Levite or the priest. 
But the reality is that these topics are more about how to serve God, and most of them do apply to the layman in some degree. And this is how the book opens. It might seem like an instruction manual for how the priests are to oversee the sacrificial system, but under the surface, there's more than this. There is, in this sacrifice manual, the descriptions of what the worshiper should bring, what the worshiper should do during the sacrifice, and most importantly, this book contains what attitudes to approach God in worship. Now, if you go looking for the attitudes of worship to be spelled out in the text, you're not going to find it, because this topic is one that's found by taking in all that's said about the practice, and that is what we'll be spending the next month or so exploring the sacrifices that were prescribed for worship. They each represent something, an emotion, an ideal, or a root thought is being expressed. And the sacrifices were the way in which people shared their own heart with God. In fact, we will discover as we proceed through these sacrifices, very few of the sacrifices have anything to do with the forgiveness of sin. Rather, they all have to do with worship in some way. So let's read these first two chapters of Leviticus and then discuss the attitude of sacrifice as presented in Leviticus. Leviticus chapters 1 and 2 And Hashem called to Moshe and spoke to him from the tent of appointment, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to Hashem, you bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, or of the flock. If his offering is an ascending offering of the herd, let him bring a male, a perfect one. Let him bring it at the door of the tent of appointment for his acceptance before Hashem. And he shall lay his hands on the head of the ascending offering, and it shall be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. And he shall slay the bull before Hashem. And the sons of Aaron the priests shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar, which is at the door of the tent of appointment. And he shall skin the ascending offering and cut it into its pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priests shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. And the sons of Aaron the priests shall arrange the pieces with the head and the fat on the wood, which is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he washes with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as an ascending offering, an offering made by fire, a sweet fragrance to Hashem. And if his offering is from the flock, from the sheep, or from the goats as an ascending offering, let him bring a male, a perfect one. And he shall slay it on the north side of the altar before Hashem, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall sprinkle its blood on the altar all around, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he washes with water, and the priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is an ascending offering, an offering made by fire, a sweet fragrance to Hashem. And if the ascending offering of his offerings to Hashem is of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar, and shall wring off its head and burn it on the altar, and its blood shall be drained out at the side of the altar. And he shall remove its crop with its feathers, and throw it beside the altar on the east side of the place for ashes. And he shall split it at its wings, but not sever it. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is an ascending offering, an offering made by fire, a sweet fragrance to Hashem. And when anyone brings a grain offering to Hashem, his offering is to be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it, and he shall bring it to the sons of Aaron, the priests, and he shall take from it his hands filled with fine flour and oil, and with all the frankincense. And the priest shall burn it as a remembrance portion on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet fragrance to Hashem. And the rest of the grain offering is for Aaron and his sons, most holy of the offerings to Hashem by fire. 
And when you bring as an offering a grain offering baked in the oven, it is of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened thin cakes anointed with oil. But if your offering is a grain offering on the griddle, it is of fine flour, unleavened, mixed with oil. Divide it into bits and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering in a stewing pot, it is made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring to Hashem the grain offering that is made of these, and shall present it to the priest, and he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering a remembrance portion and burn it on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet fragrance to Hashem. And the rest of the grain offering is for Aaron and his sons, most set apart of the offerings to Hashem made by fire. No grain offering which you bring to Hashem is made with leaven, for you do not burn any leaven or any honey in an offering to Hashem made by fire. Bring them to Hashem as an offering of the first fruits, but they are not burned on the altar for sweet fragrance. And season with salt every offering of your grain offering, and do not allow the salt of the covenant of your Elohim to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall bring salt. And if you bring a grain offering of your first fruits to Hashem, bring for the grain offering of your first fruits green heads of grain roasted in the fire, crushed heads of new grain, and you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn the remembrance portion from its crushed grain and from its oil with all the frankincense and offering made by fire to Hashem. At the end of the book of Exodus, we read of the presence of God coming down and filling the tabernacle to the point where no one, not even Moses, could enter into this house, which Israel had spent so much time and resources building. And here at the beginning of Leviticus, we read that God called to Moses from the tent. Leviticus 1.1, and Hashem called to Moshe and spoke to him from the tent of appointment, saying, Moses could not get in. Why? Well, we covered it last week. Because the people did not know the proper way to worship yet. They had the structure. They had the people to serve. They even had the heart to serve. But they didn't yet know just how it all fit together. How were the priests to act? What was expected of the people? And the ever-present question, how can people who are mortal and steeped in death enter into the presence of the holy God of life? And the book of Leviticus offers us the answer to these questions and so much more. Now, if we turn forward to the book of Numbers, we read that Hashem spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. Numbers 1.1, and Hashem spoke to Moshe in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of appointment. Somewhere between the beginning of this book and the beginning of the next, all that is needed in order to enter into the presence of God is covered. And that's what we'll discover as we read this book. Because this book is indeed a handbook for worship. All that's needed for the worship of Hashem is contained here. And the discussion of worship in the book of Leviticus begins with the topic of sacrifice. But sacrifice does not begin or end in Leviticus. Sacrifice is one of the most central ideas of worship that's present in Scripture. It's sacrifice in Genesis 4 that leads to the first murder, Genesis 4, 3-5. through And it came to be in the course of time that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to Hashem, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And Hashem looked to Abel in his offering, but he did not look to Cain in his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to God, and he looks on one and not on the other. And the envy that this causes leads Cain to kill his brother Abel. And it's sacrifice in Ezekiel 46 being present in the temple that has not yet been built in human history. 
Ezekiel 46, 12 through 15. And when the prince makes a spontaneous ascending offering or spontaneous peace offerings to Adonai, the gate facing the east shall be opened for him, and he shall prepare his ascending offering and his peace offerings as he did on the Sabbath day. And he shall go out, and after he goes out, the gate shall be shut, and make a daily ascending offering to Hashem of a lamb a year old, a perfect one, preparing it morning by morning, and prepare a grain offering with it morning by morning a sixth of an ephah and a third of a hen of oil to moisten the fine flour, a grain offering to Hashem, continual everlasting laws, and prepare the lamb and the grain offering and the oil morning by morning, a continual ascending offering. Now, this is a passage that, when taken at face value, suggests that there will be a future temple in which there will be a return to the animal sacrifice as described here in Leviticus. And this reveals a much greater truth that one day mortal man and holy God will dwell together on this earth. And as we look through scripture, we find that it was sacrifice that was required to be one of those that was passed over in Egypt. And it was sacrifice that sealed the covenant that was created at Mount Sinai. And it was the ultimate sacrifice on the cross that created the way for all of humanity to have the opportunity to dwell in the presence of God spiritually. But now in this period of history of Israel, sacrifice is impossible. At least the animal sacrifices that we read of here in the text. We will read in the course of the Torah that sacrifice to Hashem is not something that should be done just anywhere. Sacrifice was to be accomplished only within the bounds of the tabernacle and then later in the temple. Deuteronomy 12, 4-14 says, Do not do so to Hashem your God, but seek out the place which Hashem your God chooses out of all of your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling place, and there you shall enter, and there you shall take your ascending offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and the contributions of your hand and your vowed offerings and your voluntary offerings and the firstlings of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before Hashem your God, and you shall rejoice in all that you put your hand to, you and your households in which Hashem your God has blessed you. Do not do as we are doing here today, each one doing whatever is right in his own eyes, because you have not yet entered into the rest and inheritance which Hashem your God is giving you. But you shall pass over the Jordan, and you shall dwell in the land which Hashem your God is giving you to inherit, and he shall give you rest from all your enemies round about, and you shall dwell in safety. And it shall be that unto the place which Hashem your God chooses to make his name dwell there, there you are to bring all that I command you, your ascending offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and the contributions of your hand and all your choice offerings which you vow to Hashem. And you shall rejoice before Hashem your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. Guard yourself that you do not offer your ascending offerings in every place that you see, except in the place which Hashem chooses in one of your tribes. There you are to offer your ascending offerings, and there you are to do all that I command you. Now, sacrifice is not something that one simply engages in willy-nilly. It was not something that was done wherever. It was not something in which one could just offer anything they wanted. It is something that is engaged in purposefully with planning and preparation. And so the way that sacrifice is presented here in Leviticus is something that we can no longer engage in. And so let's start from the beginning and see if we can perhaps rediscover the importance of these chapters and what they can mean for us. Let's start with the initial question. What is sacrifice? What is the underlying ideal behind this practice? 
Well, Merriam-Webster describes sacrifice in this way, uh, an offering to a deity, something precious especially, the killing of a victim of an altar, or something offered in sacrifice, or the destruction or surrender of something for the sake of something else, or something given up or lost. Now, this is how the world sees and understands sacrifice. But there's more to the idea of biblical sacrifice than simply offering to a deity something precious. And as we examine the various types of sacrifice, we will find that the underlying ideals are not singular. They range from giving up something to sharing something to cleaning something. Now, it's easy and popular to look at the ideal of sacrifice as if it were monolithic, as if every sacrifice meant the same thing and was accomplished for the same purpose. But this is a false view of sacrifice. Sacrifices occurred for a range of reasons, which we're going to examine in great detail. In the Bible and in the Hebrew system of worship, there are four primary forms of sacrifice that are presented here in Leviticus. And each presents a different take on what is going on in the relationship between the worshiper and God. The first is the sacrifice that is explored here in chapter 1 of Leviticus. This is the Ola sacrifice. Everyone say Ola. Now, this sacrifice is translated as the burnt offering, ascending offering, or even the Holocaust sacrifice. The sacrifice is one in which the animal is skinned, and then the entire thing is then burnt up on the altar. The head, the innards, the legs, the torso, the entire Ola offering is burnt up with one exception. The skin. The skin of the Ola offering is given to the priest that officiates the sacrifice. We read this in Leviticus 7, verse 8. And the priest who brings anyone's ascending offering, the skin of the ascending offering which he has brought, is the priest's. It is his. But in this sacrifice, nothing else is kept or eaten, unlike with the other sacrifices. This sacrifice is one that is given in the spirit of fear or awe of God. It is a recognition that God owns all, and the Ola is a practical living out of giving back a portion of what is his already. Now, throughout scripture, we see the Ola used in this way in various circumstances, which we're going to cover in just a moment. The second primary type of sacrifice is found in chapter 2, and this sacrifice is called the Mincha sacrifice. Everyone say, Mincha well, this sacrifice is translated in several ways, including meal or grain or meat offering. And just understand meat offering is King James 1611 language. In the Old English, meat was a word that was used to refer to any food, not specifically to animal products as it means today. And if you can understand that, then several passages in scripture actually makes a whole lot more sense. The Mincha sacrifice, we will discover, is one that consists primarily of grain with frankincense and without yeast. It is a bloodless sacrifice, and we can discover the idea represented by the sacrifice in the name of the sacrifice. You see, the word Mincha does not specifically mean grain, even though in this context it is translated that way. The word Mincha, however, simply means gift, a present, a tribute, or an offering. And as we consider what is done with this offering, we see this represented. A portion of the offering was to be burnt on the altar, but the remainder belonged to the priests. 
Now, we will focus more on the priest's role and portion and what they represent in a later lesson. For now, let's just get an idea of who received parts of each sacrifice. And in this case, the priests received the mincha. And if we turn to Leviticus 6 and 7 and after, we will discover that nearly every sacrifice, including the Degeli sacrifice, included a mincha as part of the sacrifice. And the mincha contains within it the ideal of giving a gift to God, or even paying tribute. When we get into it later, the idea of the first fruits offering is steeped in this understanding of giving tribute to your king. Not just a gift, but a gift for a king. And we see this in chapter 2, that the first fruit offerings are specifically described. Now, these first two sacrifices, if we pay attention, we discover that the word zevach, or sacrifice, is not used in these chapters to describe these first two. Rather, the only word used to describe these first two offerings is the word offering, or korban. These first two were not to pay for or to ensure anything specifically. Rather, they were offerings that were offered when the heart of the person moved them from the layman's perspective. Otherwise, the Ola is one that took place in many rites performed daily, monthly, and on festivals alongside the Mincha. Now, the third type of sacrifice that we are going to cover in Leviticus is the Shlamim sacrifice, which is in chapter 3. Everyone say, Shlamim. This sacrifice gets its name as a derivative of the word Shalom, which is why this sacrifice is generally translated as a peace or a fellowship offering. Now, this sacrifice is the only sacrifice in which the worshiper gets a portion of the sacrifice back. The Shlomim sacrifice covers the ideals of friendship or fellowship with God and its representative of living in community with God, dwelling with Him in peace. This sacrifice was a meal that was shared with God. And while this offering could be a voluntary offering in the wilderness and in several unique circumstances, this type of offering was something that must be done. While Israel was in the wilderness, any time that a person wanted to sacrifice an animal that could be sacrificed, the command was that this animal must be sacrificed as the Shlemim offering. We'll read more about that in Leviticus 17. But in this way, Hashem prevented the people from sacrificing to other gods in their tents or on their thresholds, as was the custom of the time. Everything that could be a sacrifice was to be a sacrifice to Hashem. And as we continue in the book of Deuteronomy, then we'll find that that limitation is then lifted before the people enter into the land. Now, the Shilmim has two subsets of sacrifice that were attached to it, which are both found in Leviticus 7. There is the thanksgiving sacrifice, which was offered to God as a sign of gratefulness for some favor or just thankfulness to God in general. This type of shlomim was voluntary. It allowed a person to share a testimony of something that God had done for them. The second subset of the shlomim is the vow sacrifice. Uh, The sacrifice was part of taking a vow, and it was a compelled sacrifice. If a person was taking a vow, then the person was to offer a sacrifice alongside it. We'll get into exactly why that is in a later lesson. The final primary type of sacrifice is the chata'at offering. Everyone say chata'at. Make sure you get it in the back of your throat. Chata'at. This offering is usually translated as the sin offering, and it's found in chapters 4 and 5. 
Now, this offering is one that has confused generations of Bible readers, as the translation of the word chata'at is indeed a correct translation. It is derived from the word for sin elsewhere, which is chata'ah. The problem that we have in understanding the sacrifice is what effect the sacrifice was to have on an individual or an item. You see, the common way of dealing with this sacrifice has been to take what we think the New Testament is saying about sin and sacrifice, and then to superimpose those ideas back on the sacrificial system that's outlined here in Leviticus. In doing this, we completely miss the point of what's being explained here. The sin offering did nothing for the removal of sins. And as we look at this more, we're going to see this clearly in two weeks. But for now, we can take our cue from Hebrews 10.4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was never intended to take away sins. The blood of animals has no efficacy when it comes to removing the sin from a person. If it did, then why in the world are articles of furniture and utensils being cleansed with the sin offering? These things did not sin, did they? Did they fail to carry out the instructions of God? They're inanimate objects, and yet we read in Leviticus 16 and many other places of sin offering being used to atone for items. On the Day of Atonement, there are two animals that are offered as sin offerings, a bull for the high priest and a goat, and both are sin offerings, and yet we read this later in the chapter. Leviticus 16, 14-19 And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the lid of atonement on the east side. Also in front of the lid of atonement, he sprinkles some of the blood with his finger seven times. And he shall slay the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and he shall bring its blood inside the veil, and shall do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the lid of atonement and in front of the lid of atonement. And he shall make atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so he does for the tent of appointment, which is dwelling with them in their midst of uncleanness." And no man should be in the tent of appointment when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out, and he shall make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. That we understand. But then it says, And he shall go out to the altar that is before Adonai and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and sanctify it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. The sin offering is not for the remission or forgiveness of sins. Rather, it's a purification offering that removes uncleanness from a person or the articles that are used to serve God. And when we understand this and then read the New Testament, we discover that this is the absolute truth. Hebrews 10, 3-4 But in those offerings is a reminder of sins, year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The sin offering offered is a reminder of sin. A sin offering cleansed the impurity that's caused by sin. But the blood of bulls and goats does not remove sins. Only one sacrifice ever did this, and that is the better sacrifice that we have through Yeshua. And from all of this, we can discover that the sin offering has a primary ideal behind it, and that is recognition of our own faults and failings. 
It's an admission of our own impurity and our fallen nature before a God of holiness. Now, just like with the Shlemim sacrifice, there is a subset to the sin sacrifice that we read of in chapter 6. That's called the Asham sacrifice or the guilt sacrifice. The sacrifice is more than just a cleansing of impurity that naturally clings to us. This sacrifice is an admittance of guilt. It is a recognition that sin has been committed and that the sin was not just against another person, but was a sin against God. And it is this sacrifice that allows a person to continue on in the community and to continue to live in the presence of God after they have committed a trespass. And with the chata'at sacrifice, some is burnt on the altar and the priest gets a portion of the rest of the animal. The worshiper gets nothing at the end of the sacrifice except for the ability to continue to live in the community and to worship Hashem, and the knowledge that his uncleanness is no longer an offense to God. Now, those are the primary modes of sacrifice that we'll be speaking of for the next few weeks and exploring in much greater detail. For now, let's return to the Ola and the Mincha and discuss these sacrifices in more detail. First, the Ola, the burnt, ascending, or holocaust sacrifice. And yes, the word holocaust is derived from the Hebrew word ola. No, the holocaust was not some sort of sacrifice to God. The word holocaust was attached to the events that were perpetrated on the Jewish people in Nazi Germany by a journalist that was covering the trial of Adolf Eichmann in 1961, long after the holocaust actually happened. The term stuck after that. It's not truly connected to the Ola of Leviticus, other than to bear the name and to speak of a complete immolation of a body. Now, as we discussed earlier, the Ola sacrifice is one that contains within it the ideal of having a healthy fear of Hashem. The daily sacrifices that we will read of later are presented as Ola offerings. It is a recognition of the place of God as the ruler of all. It is a demonstration that Hashem owns the earth and all that is in it. And in recognition of this, the people would offer up the entirety of a portion of their own belongings, something that no one received any benefit from other than the one who offered it. And throughout scripture, we see the Ola used in this way. Now, we will talk more about this in Leviticus 10 when Aaron offers an Ola in place of a Shlamim, but we're not going to cover that story today. Now, let's look at other places where Ola offerings were offered. How about 1 Samuel 7, verses 7 through 10? And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mitzpah, the princes of the Philistines went up against Israel, and the children of Israel heard of it and were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to Hashem our God for us, that he would save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as an ascending offering completely to Hashem. And Samuel cried out to Hashem for Israel, and Hashem answered him. And it came to be as Samuel offered up the ascending offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But Hashem thundered with a great noise on that day on the Philistines and troubled them, and they were smitten before Israel. In this case, Samuel uses the Olah sacrifice as a statement of, We are in your hands, Hashem. We cannot win this without you. And the whole world belongs to you. Now, later in Israel's history, when David takes the census of the people and then a plague breaks out among the people, we read this story in 1 Chronicles twenty-one eighteen, and then verses 26 through 30. In verse 18, 
And the messenger of Hashem commanded God to say to David that David should go up and to raise an altar to Hashem on the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. Continuing on in verse 26. And David built there an altar to Hashem and offered ascending offerings and peace offerings and called to Hashem. And he answered him from the heavens by fire on the altar of ascending offering. Then Hashem commanded the messenger and he returned his sword to his sheath. At that time, when David saw that Hashem had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite, he sacrificed there for the dwelling place of Hashem and the altar of the ascending offering, which Moshe had made in the wilderness, were at that time in the high place of Gibbon. But David was unable to go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the messenger of Hashem. So the messenger of Hashem is going through the country, killing the people. And David is told by the prophet God to go and offer sacrifice on Ornan. Just as with the example in Leviticus 10, we discover here that the Ola is the appropriate sacrifice for worshiping while facing God's judgment. David had caused a plague through his own insistence that the census be taken. When that plague broke out, David was unable to make it to the tabernacle in order to offer a sacrifice. And so the prophet God told David to buy the threshing floor of Ornon. Now this site later becomes the location of the temple, and this sacrifice is the first sacrifice that's offered on that location. And the sacrifice here is one that is a sacrifice of mourning and appeal. It's a recognition that God has taken something precious to you, something of value, and your act of worship in this case is to give him more. It is the recognition that he has all authority and power and that we are completely helpless before him. It is the Ola offering that is the first sacrifice offered on every altar recorded in scripture, when scripture, of course, speaks of a sacrifice being offered. Whether it's Noah coming off the ark, it's a burnt offering that's commanded in the Akedah, and the goat that was then given in return is then offered as an Ola. It is an Ola that's part of every festival. It's an Ola that's offered on every day. It's an Ola offering that was accomplished on the new moons. It was an Ola offering that was the only sacrifice that was to be done on the Sabbath. It is the Ola offering and a healthy dose of the fear of Hashem that was the backbone of the entire existence of Israel. And it's this attitude that should precede us as we move through life, especially as we move into worship of Hashem. The fear of Hashem is the beginning of wisdom, and the fear of Hashem is one aspect of the spirit of Hashem. It is the fear of Hashem that is what leads up to and precedes the Shema that we recite every day or every week, depending on who you are. How often do we read Deuteronomy 6 verses 1 through 3 that lead up to the Shema? It says, and this is the command and the laws and the judgments which Hashem your God has commanded to teach you to do in the land which you are passing over to possess, so that you fear Hashem your God to guard all his laws and his commands which I commanded you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days be prolonged. And you shall hear, O Israel, and you shall guard to do that it might be well with you, and that you increase greatly, as Hashem, your God of your fathers, has spoken to you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. It's the fear of Hashem that leads to proper worship and allows us to be in community with Him. And it is the Ola and this attitude of fear or awe that begins the book of Leviticus.
The next offering in Leviticus 2 is the mincha, which, as I've already stated, means a gift or tribute, more than it means grain. We see this a couple times in Scripture, for example, Genesis 32.13. And he spent the night there and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. That word present is a mincha. Genesis 43.11, And their father Israel said to them, If so, then do this. Take some of the best fruit of the land in your vessels and bring a present, or mincha, down for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds. Or 2 Kings 8.8-9, And the king said to Hazael, Take as a present in your hand and go and meet the man of God and inquire of Hashem by him, saying, Do I recover from this sickness? And Hazael went to meet him and took a present mincha with him, of all the good wares of Damascus, forty camel loads. And he came and he stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to you, saying, Do I recover from this sickness? But as I also said, this word mincha has just as much to do with tribute as well. And we see this a couple times throughout scripture. First Kings 10, 24-25. And all of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they were each bringing his tribute, objects of silver and objects of gold and garments and armor and spices, horses and mules, the matter of a year by year. Or 2 Kings 7 verse 14. But the king of Assyria found a conspiracy in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and he had brought a tribute to the king of Assyria as year by year. And the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Now it just so happens that Hashem likes his gifts and his tributes to be in the form of grain offerings. And this teaches us that our worship of God is indeed an intimate relationship. And just as we act in our relationships with those intimately connected to us, we should act in our relationship with God. And what was the type of relationship that we just finished looking at in the pages of Exodus? What was that metaphor, that symbol that was used to describe the covenant? It's one of marriage. And with a spouse, with a spouse we give gifts, or at least we should. And when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, we will see the relationship with Hashem then steeped in another metaphor or symbol. That is the metaphor of a high or suzerain king to his vassal kings. Vassals that then owe tribute to the high king. And we see this represented in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 through 4. And it shall be when you come into the land which Hashem your God is giving you as an inheritance, that you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the fruits of the soil which you bring in from your land that Hashem your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket and shall go to the place where Hashem your God chooses to make his name dwell there. And you shall come to the one who is priest in those days and say to him, I shall declare today to Hashem your God, that I have come to the land which Hashem swore to our fathers to give us. And the priest shall take the basket from your hand and place it before the altar of Hashem your God. Continuing on then in verses 10 through 11. And now see, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Hashem, have given me. Then you shall place it before Hashem your God and bow down before Hashem your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good which Hashem your God has given you and your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. This passage is all about tribute, and it steeps the first fruits tithe as a tribute that is given to the high king from us, the vassals who are under him. And the Mincha demonstrates both 
both gift and tribute. Now, the mincha, as a standalone, it is a completely voluntary offering. By itself, it is not compelled. It is one that is given simply because the worshiper wishes to share some of what they have with God. But the mincha is something that was part of nearly every other sacrifice in one way or another. It was an add-on to the other sacrifices. And when the mincha is part of a first fruits offering, it takes on the cast of tribute offered to a king. Both ideas, gift and tribute, are contained within the word mincha. Both ideas which are the second attitude of worship. And so the question arises as it always does when we read the book of Leviticus. Alright, that's cool and all, but what does it mean for me today? I can't go to a temple or a tabernacle and offer a sacrifice. But as we've seen, these attitudes of worship, they're important. They are foundational. This is the handbook for the foundation of how to worship Hashem. This is the book that preceded the organized worship of Hashem. This is the book that influenced the millennia of worship that then came after. And so, yes, the ideals of worship contained in this book are indeed foundational in so many ways. But they're also ideals that can teach us a great deal about the attitude of worship that we should engage in in this present age. The Ola we see represented, for example, in Romans 12, verse 1, And I call upon you, therefore, brothers, through compassion to God, to present your bodies as a living offering, holy and well-pleasing to God, your reasonable worship. According to Paul, this is our reasonable act of worship in light of what Yeshua has done for us. This is the way that we have to engage in an Ola sacrifice. We give all of ourselves in service to him. We can keep our skin, but everything else is his. Our lives, our futures, families, homes, everything. It is the everythingness of the Shema. And with the Mincha, we find a reference to it in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice offering of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. The sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips, a first fruits offering, a gift given to God, praise declaring out loud his character and qualities. And this is where worship begins, but this is not where it ends. The fear of Hashem and the recognition of our role as spouse and vassal to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it is the fear of Hashem that is the first step on the path of life. And it is coming into relationship with Him as the head that is the second step as we derish chai, as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.